Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, The Public Hating by Steve Allen. This was first published in Blue Book, January 1955. So came out, I guess, late 1954. A very interesting year for this story to come out. I guess uh, probably there were reasons for it. Um, I was only vaguely, vaguely familiar with Steve Allen, but uh, that was enough for me to put his name in finding this issue of the Blue Book and the title, which I thought was interesting, uh, into my reading queue, and I read it, and then I'm like, oh yeah, I know sort of vaguely who Steve Allen was, but he's a little bit before my time as a figure, and yet I studied up quite a bit on him over um, the week or so that we, we uh, it takes for, for me to study. Um how familiar are you with Steve Allen's work? Well, my friend, this is one of the consequences of the differences, the difference in our ages. Um, Steve Allen had the first late night talk show on television mm-hmm. broadcast out of New York. And I grew up in New York. Uh, I was born in 1946. I was uh, eight or nine when this came out. And I remember Steve Allen. I remember his enormous joy in wordplay mm. when I saw him on TV. I remember him with his wife, Audrey Meadows, on different game shows. Um, I think it was Audrey Meadows, one of the Meadows sisters. Mm-hmm. I can picture her anyway. Um, I remember watching him play piano and sing satiric songs that he made up. He was a polymath mm-hmm. and a delightful entertainer. I can picture him to this day with his, his dark uh, heavy, heavily framed glasses and a wavy dark hair. Of course, it was a black and white TV, so who knows? <laughs> but he was a TV man, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell, and that's important for this story. I think you, uh, I think you're right. Yeah. So no, I remember him. To you, he may be history. To me, he is memory. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I I think I was vaguely familiar with him, sort of showing up uh, as a guest on shows in the '80s. Um, and that people were excited about the fact that he was on their show um, because he lived into 2000. Wow. Amazing. Um, but uh, I, I watched uh, an episode of uh, the Steve Allen show, I guess was what it was in 1963. And he's got a personality and he's got a he's got a wit and he's got a um, I, I noticed a sort of a dark undercurrent in his uh, in his jokes like. They're, they're, they seem all nice and friendly, but there's something underneath <laughs> there that's kind of dark. He was a thoughtful person, and mm-hmm. there was a lot to uh, to make us uh, concerned about the state of the world and the state of America. I think that's one of the great things about this story. In fact, when I was a boy, oh, let's say 10 or 12, it was two, three years later than the publication of this, I remember people in the schoolyard just in casual conversation hypothesizing this as a possibility um and not realizing they had you know the story had somehow gotten in its minor way into the zeitgeist Mm. that i was growing up in in new york as well as uh well i'll tell you when we've done hearing the story since i think you wanted me to read it yes please if you would do your best steve allen impression (laughs) 
no, 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 no. <laughs> the public hating. The weather was a little cloudy on that September 9th, 1978, and here and there in the crowds that surged up the ramps into the stadium, people were looking at the sky and then at their neighbors and squinting and saying, hope she doesn't rain. On television, the weatherman had forecast slight cloudiness, but no showers. It was not cold. All over the neighborhood surrounding the stadium, people poured out of the streetcars and buses and subways. In ant-like lines, they crawled across the streets, through turnstiles, up stairways, along ramps, through gates, down aisles. Laughing and shoving restlessly, damp-palmed with excitement, they came shuffling into the great concrete bowl, some stopping to go to the restroom, some buying popcorn, some taking free pamphlets from the uniformed attendants. Everything was free this particular day. No tickets had been sold for the event. The public proclamations had simply been made in the newspapers and on TV, and over 65,000 people had responded. For weeks, of course, the papers had been suggesting that the event would take place. All during the trial, even as early as the selection of the jury, the columnists had slyly hinted at the inevitability of the outcome. But it had only been official since yesterday. The television networks had actually gotten a slight jump on the papers. At six o'clock, the government had taken over all network facilities for a brief five-minute period during which the announcement was made. We have all followed with great interest, the premier had said, looking calm and handsome in a gray double-breasted suit, the course of the trial of Professor Ketteridge. Early this afternoon, the jury returned a verdict of guilty. This verdict having been confirmed within the hour by the Supreme Court, in the interests of time-saving, the White House has decided to make the usual prompt official announcement. There will be a public hating tomorrow, the time 2.30 p.m., the place Yankee Stadium in New York City. Your assistance is earnestly requested. Those of you in the New York area will find the voice had gone on, filling in other details. And in the morning, the early editions of the newspapers included pictures captioned, Bronx couple first in line, and students wait all night to view hating, and early birds. By 1.30 in the afternoon, there was not an empty seat in the stadium, and people were beginning to fill up a few of the aisles. Special police began to block off the exits, and word was sent down to the street that no more people could be admitted. Hawkers slipped through the crowd selling cold beer and hot dogs. Sitting just back of what would have been first base had the Yankees not been playing in Cleveland, Frederick Traub stared curiously at the platform in the middle of the field. It was about twice the size of a prize-fighting ring. In the middle of it, there was a small raised section on which was placed a plain wooden kitchen chair. To the left of the chair, there were seating accommodations for a small group of dignitaries. Downstage, so to speak, there was a speaker's lectern and a battery of microphones. The platform was hung with bunting and pennants. The crowd was beginning to hum ominously. At two minutes after two o'clock, a small group of men filed out onto the field from a point just back of home plate. The crowd buzzed more loudly for a moment and then burst into applause. The men carefully climbed a few wooden steps, walked in a single file across the platform, and seated themselves in the chairs set out for them. Traub turned around and was interested to observe, high in the press box, the winking red lights of television cameras. 
remarkable, said Traub softly to his companion. I suppose, said the man, but effective. I guess you're right. I guess that's right, said Traub. Still, it, it all seems a little strange to me. We do things rather differently. That's what makes horse racing, said his companion. Traub listened for a moment to the voices around him. Surprisingly, no one seemed to be discussing the business at hand. Baseball, movies, the weather, gossip, personal small talk, a thousand and one subjects were introduced. It was almost as if they were trying not to mention the hating. His friend's voice broke in on Traub's reverie. Think you'll be okay when we get down to the business? I've seen him keel over. I'll be all right, said Traub. Then he shook his head. But I still can't believe it. What do you mean? Oh, you know, the whole thing, how it started, how you found you could do it. Beats the hell out of me, said the other man. I think it was that guy at Duke University first came up with the idea. The mind over matter thing has been around for a long time, of course. But this guy, he was the first one to prove scientifically that mind can control matter. Did it with dice, I believe, Traub said. Yeah, that's it. First, he found some guys who could drop a dozen or so dice down a chute of some kind and actually control the direction they take. Then they discovered the secret. It was simple. The guys who could control the dice were simply the guys who thought they could. Then, one time they got the idea of taking the dice into an auditorium and having about 2,000 people concentrate on forcing the dice one way or the other. That did it. It was the most natural thing in the world when you think of it. If one horse can pull a heavy load so far and so fast, it figures that 10 horses can pull it a lot further and a lot faster. They had those dice falling where they wanted them 80% of the time. When did they first substitute a living organism for the dice, Traub asked. Damned if I know, said the man. It was quite a few years ago, and at first the government sort of clamped down on the thing. There was a little last-ditch fight from the churches, I think, but they finally realized you couldn't stop it. Is this an unusually large crowd? Not for a political prisoner. You take a rapist or a murderer now, some of them don't pull more than maybe 20, 30,000. The people just don't get stirred up enough. The sun had come out from behind a cloud now, and Traub watched silently as a large map-shaped, as large map-shaped shadows moved majestically across the grass. She's warming up, someone said. That's right, a voice agreed. Gonna be real nice. Traub leaned forward and lowered his head as he retied the laces of his right shoe, and in the next instant, he was shocked to attention by a guttural roar from the crowd that vibrated the floor. In distant right center field, three men were walking toward the platform. Two were walking together. The third was slouched in front of them, head down, his gait unsteady. Traub had thought he was going to be all right, but now, looking at that tired figure being prodded towards second base, looking at the bare, bald head, he began to feel slightly sick. It seemed to take forever before the two guards jostled the prisoner up the stairs and toward the small kitchen chair. When he reached it and seated himself, the crowd roared again. A tall, distinguished man stepped to the speaker's lectern and cleared his throat, raising his right hand in an appeal for quiet. All right, he said, all right. The mob slowly fell silent. Traub clasped his hands tightly together. He felt a little 
ashamed. All right, said the speaker. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. On behalf of the president of the United States, I welcome you to another public hating. This particular affair, he said, as you know, is directed against the man who was yesterday judged guilty in United States District Court here in New York City, Professor Arthur Ketteridge. At the mention of Ketteridge's name, the crowd made a noise like an earthquake rumble. Several pop bottles were thrown futilely from the center field bleachers. We will begin in just a moment, said the speaker, but first I should like to introduce the Reverend Charles Fuller of the Park Avenue Reborn Church, who will make the invocation. A small man with glasses stepped forward, replaced the first speaker at the microphone, closed his eyes, and threw back his head our heavenly father, he said, to whom we are indebted for all the blessings of this life, grant we beseech thee that we act today in justice and in the spirit of truth. Grant, O Lord, we pray thee, that what we are about to do here today will render us the humble servants of thy divine will. For it is written, the wages of sin is death. Search deep into this man's heart for the seed of repentance, if there be such, and if there be not, plant it therein, O Lord, in thy goodness and mercy. There was a slight pause. The Reverend Fuller coughed and then said, Amen. The crowd, which had stood quietly during the prayer, now sat down and began to buzz again. The first speaker rose. All right, he said. You know we all have a job to do, and you know why we have to do it. Yes! screamed thousands of voices. Then let us get down to the business at hand. At this time, I would like to introduce to you a very great American who, to use the old phrase, needs no introduction, former president of Harvard University, current advisor to the Secretary of State, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Howard S. Weltmer. A wave of applause vibrated the air. Dr. Weltmer stepped forward, shook hands with the speaker, and adjusted the microphone. Thank you, he said. Now, we won't waste any more time here, since what we are about to do will take every bit of our energy and concentration if it is to be successfully accomplished. I ask you all, he said, to direct your unwavering attention toward the man seated in the chair to my left here, a man who, in my opinion, is the most despicable criminal of our time, Professor Arthur Ketteridge. The mob shrieked. I ask you, said Veltmer, to rise. That's it, everybody. Stand up. Now I want every one of you, I understand we have upwards of 70,000 people here today. I want every single one of you to stare directly at this fiend in human form, Ketteridge. I want you to let him know by the wondrous power that lies in the strength of your emotional reservoirs. I want you to let him know that he is a criminal that he is worse than a murderer, that he has committed treason, that he is not loved by anyone anywhere in the universe, and that he is rather despised with a vigor equal in heat to the power of the sun itself. People around Shroud were shaking their fists now. Their eyes were narrowed, their mouths turned down at the corners. A woman fainted. Come on, shouted Weltmer, let's feel it. 
Under the spell of the speaker, Traub was suddenly horrified to find that his blood was racing, his heart pounding. He felt anger surging up in him. He could not believe he hated Ketteridge, but he could not deny he hated something. On the souls of your mothers, Welkmer was saying, on the future of your children, out of their love for your country, I demand of you that you unleash your power to despise. I want you to become ferocious. I want you to become as the beasts of the jungle, as furious as they in the defense of their homes. Do you hate this man? Yes, roared the crowd. Fiend, cried Welkmer, enemy of the people. Do you hear, Ketteridge? Traub watched in dry mouth fascination as the slumped figure in the chair straightened up convulsively and chirped at his collar. At this first indication that their power was reaching home, the crowd roared to a new peak of excitement. We plead, said Welkmer, with you people watching today on your television sets to join with us in hating this wretch all over America. Stand up, if you will, in your living rooms, Face the East, face New York City, and let anger flood your hearts. Speak it out. Let it flow. A man besides Traub, a man beside Traub sat down, turned aside, and vomited softly into a handkerchief. Traub picked up the binoculars the man had discarded for the moment and fastened them on Kittredge's figure, twirling the focus knob furiously. In a moment, the man leaped into the foreground. Traub saw that his eyes were full of tears, that his body was racked with sobs, that he was in obvious pain. He is not fit to live, Welkmers was shouting. Turn your anger upon him. Channel it. Make it productive. Be not angry with your family, your friends, your fellow citizens, but let your anger pour out in a violent torrent on the head of this human devil, screamed Welkmer. Come on, let's do it. Let's get it over with. At that moment, Traub was at last convinced of the enormity of Ketridge's crime, and Welkmer said, all right, that. That's it. Now let's get down to brass tacks. Let's concentrate on his right arm. Hate it, do you hear? Burn the flesh from the bone. You can do it. Come on, burn him alive. Traub stared unblinking through the binoculars at Ketridge's right arm as the prisoner leaped to his feet and ripped off his jacket, howling with his left hand, he gripped his right forearm and then Traub saw the flesh turning dark, first a deep red and then a livid purple. The fingers contracted and Ketridge whirled on his small platform like a dervish, slapping his arm against his side. That's it, Weltmer called. You're doing it. You're doing it. Mind over matter. That's it. Burn this offending flesh. Be as the avenging angels of the Lord. Smite this devil. That's it. The flesh was turning darker now across the shoulders as Ketridge tore his shirt off. Screaming, he broke away from the chair and leaped off the platform, landing on the grass, on his knees on the grass. Oh, the power is wonderful, cried Weltmer. You've got him. Now let's turn it on, really. Come on. Ketridge writhed on the grass and then rose and began running back and forth directionless like a bug on a griddle. Traub could watch no longer. He put down the binoculars and staggered back up the aisle. Outside the stadium, he walked for 12 blocks before he hailed a cab. You scared me, Eric.
This is a very scary story. You made it scarier. Very scary. Um, my it's, students, it, who I read this with, um, said, that's it? And they turned the page and they look for the next page. That's it? And I said, yeah. And then they're like, I don't like it. And then one of them says, oh, I get it. And I'm like, what do you get? <laughs> um, we never find out what this evil monster, uh, what crime he committed. Indeed. Ketteridge, Professor Ketteridge, what horrible crime. Worse than murder, worse than rape. It says treason, he committed treason, worse than murder. But what what is that treason? Um, I think uh, part of the answer can be found by looking at the year it was probably written in. It was published in uh, 54, or uh, in the January 55 issue of Blue Book. Um which means it would have come out in 1954, end of 54. And what was happening in 54? I was not alive, but I've heard about it, Eric. <laughs> yeah. Um, amongst uh, many other things that were happening, you know, there was a, a nuclear submarine and uh, there was a, a, a CIA coup in Guatemala. There was also, um, uh, it was the height of the second Red Scare and McCarthy this is the year we get that line to have you no decency, sir. When, when uh, McCarthy went after, he started on the army, um, saying, "Is the army soft on communism?" And that's where the line "Have you no decency, sir?" came from. It, it'd be interesting, uh, like Steve Allen's on a t. He's on TV. He's a TV guy at this time. Yep. Right next yeah, to him on TV is is the senator. There are some uh, interesting things in this story that are rooted in the time. It is um, it's written a little past the McCarthy era. Um, uh, the Korean War is over. People have been killed for no reason. That is, their lives have been effectively ended, particularly in the entertainment industry, by being blacklisted by Joseph McCarthy saying, I have here a list and holding a piece of paper in his hand on which I have the names of. And no proof is ever given. And there are people who, like uh, Dalton Trumbo, incredibly, incredibly powerful and articulate writer who wrote Johnny Got His Gun, a great anti-war novel uh, about someone who is destroyed by modern machination, machinations of war. And, and he never could write again under his own name. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say never, but it took decades before he could write again under his own name. Um, McCarthy did this and he used television as his tool for public hating. There's no doubt about it. Um, there's other things going on here historically, though, that are a little strange. Mm -hmm. um, we know we're in the United States. Yep. We know we're 23 years after the date of publication. Mm -hmm. We know the United States has a president. So who is the premier? Yeah, that's an interesting word, isn't it? We have premiers in, in Canada, the, the leaders. It's like the equivalent of the governor. Right, but we don't in the U.S. But also, um, there's a reference here to some fellow at Duke who does experiments with dice. Well, that fellow at Duke was quite famous among me and my boyhood friends. Mm -hmm. J.B. Rhine was his name. And 
for years and years, he was thought of as the scientist demonstrating that ESP was real. Mm -hmm. Um, It's since been shown that his experiments were flawed. But in the 50s, um, Duke University was famous among boys in New York basically because it had J.B. Ryan there. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's reference to stuff going on. I should point out that that Kettridge has a very evocative name for me, maybe because, uh, you know, I'm uh, an erstwhile professor of English, but there is a man named George Lyman Kittredge, mm-hmm. K-I-T-T-R-E-D-G-E, who was considered um, the greatest Shakespearean scholar of his generation, bar none. I mean, he just was the greatest Shakespearean scholar of his generation. Um, he died in 1941. His, his fame was so well established that I heard stories about him when I went to graduate school in the 1960s. Okay, So two decades after his death, people still talked about George Lyman Kittredge. It turns out that uh, he spent most of his career at Harvard. And, of course, the, the, the bellowing voice that we have leading the public hating is the former president of Harvard. Mm-hmm. It also turns out that one of Kittredge's best-known books is about witchcraft. Mm-hmm. It's Shakespeare that he is best known for. Um I can't help but think that Steve Allen has a sense of these things. Mm-hmm. He's really giving us a, uh, a prescient view of the degree to which both scholarship and politics devolve into entertainment. And the mob rule means that quality, I mean, who cares what the guy's crime was? He's asserted to be a criminal. He's a treasonous bastard. Exactly. I mean, rape, murder, those those are bad, but, you know, they only affect individuals. Something that affects the country, my country, gets people really angry. Sort of like the way people in Wisconsin are really worried about families trying to get across the border mm. in New Mexico. Mm. Yep. It's it's, it's it's a very interesting story. And I, I was thinking, there are actually two shows previously we've done that are kind of sort of rhyming with this one. Um, you know, The Lottery by Shirley Jackson has that same feeling. When you get to the end of it, you say, why did all this happen? What, why did they do this? And why did they go along with it? And our Traub character, who's, I, I think of him as a foreign... A foreign you know, observer. He's not from the States. It's not explicitly stated, I guess, but maybe he's from Canada. He's down, or maybe he's from Denmark. He's down visiting, uh, see how the Americans do it, right? Wow. Okay. Um, We are that person in the lottery. We are the outside observer. Um, And it all happens for reasons that aren't really explained and never it's very disturbing that's from 1948 um and there's another story that's i don't know how these all you know aren't they they seem connected um our episode number 97 
um, is The Stroke of the Sun by Arthur C. Clarke, which is a sort of a more, even more science fiction version of, of an execution in a public stadium using literally the power of the sun, which is called out in here, but is, is not, um, uh, this, uh, which is three years later, right? That story. But um, that, that, that has a uh, non-para-psychology explanation. It's a simple mirrors issue, concentrate, concentration of light. But it, that, it's for a you know, public assassination. This has far more connections, I think, to the lottery in terms of um, the disturbing power of the mob. Yes. I, I agree. I think it's important to point out these 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 two echoes, as you say, um, call them. I think in some ways the public hating is a better story than either of the other two. Mm. Um, Shirley Jackson's story is by far the most famous, and it, it, it's, its writing is superb. And in terms of pacing and style and so on, I would be willing to, to grant that uh, – that Jackson's story is better than either Allen's or Clark's, but both Allen, but, but both Clark and Jackson are concerned with the, the possibility of the majority abandoning morality. They take the notion in effect of lynching of, of mob arrogation of the power of the state and show how democracy can devolve into demagogy and immorality, violently, mm-hmm. terribly. Um, and, and Jackson does it sort of by saying, well, small towns, you know, um, everybody knows each other too well, and they do all of this stuff. Clark does it by saying, well, you know, there's a wide world and we're all going to harness the power of the sun. We're all under the same sun. What Alan does is show that it is, in fact, not justified in any other way than by entertainment. It begins with television mentioned in the first two paragraphs. Television comes up again and again. Police have to keep people from going. They're selling hot dogs and popcorn. Mm -hmm. Alan recognizes that what could be the small town or just the neighborhood or the, 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 the city um, could become the entire nation. Mm-hmm. And it can do this through modern technology. This is fun because everything becomes sanitized by this technology. In that sense, I think Alan has gone a bit further than Jackson or Clark in seeing the mechanisms by which those warnings can become vivid mm-hmm. in our lives today, mm-hmm. and it, it, it it's it's a nice metaphor too because you know this is the sort of thing that happens on social media every once in a while somebody somebody does a major faux pas, <laughs> right. and you know they they are hated off of off of the internet you know uh, and and maybe to come back one day but maybe not and and the power of just thousands and thousands of people sending you hate over you know your tweet account or your twitter account or your facebook page or whatever it is um it's not gonna literally set your skin on fire and set you alight but it's certainly um gonna make you feel pretty terrible when that much hate is being directed at you and it, and it can be directed right that's the thing about this story is that you've got the official government 
minister or the advisor to the minister and it's all ceremonial and i love the detail that yeah sure there was a trial uh but the uh the 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 very day right the uh, supreme court says yep it was right they gotta get it on right this is gonna happen and in fact, the newspapers had hinted from before the mm-hmm. trial even began mm-hmm. what the outcome was going to be. There was a fixed public narrative. Mm-hmm. I think I think you're right in saying this is a metaphor that speaks volumes. If you take a look at the at the text that you've posted for us and take away the page that's that very good illustration. Mm-hmm. In fact, at the dead center of the story comes the sentence that I think of as the most important. The secret that is, they just, the secret to what Ryan was studying uh, at uh, Duke. The secret, it was simple. The guys who could control the dice were simply the guys who thought they could. Mm-hmm. And that's just what you're saying about social media, Jesse. As long as you think you can whip up stuff, as long as you think you've got the right to, to blast and blaspheme and excoriate, by golly, you can. Hmm. I guess, uh, although this was written more than half a century ago, clearly there is always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep. Thank you.